thank you, Daniel. Uh, as you said, I'm Vivek Krishnamurthy, and um, you may remember me from such uh, Brooklyn Klein lunches as yesterday's lunch. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not here to introduce myself. I'm here to introduce uh, my great friend, uh, collaborator, and colleague on uh, a bunch of different ventures, Arturo Carrillo, who is professor of law at George Washington University Law School, directs the International Human Rights Clinic there, and uh, came to uh, uh, working on law and technology issues and human rights issues from a really human rights perspective, having spent many years uh, working for the UN uh, in El Salvador, amongst other places, on more traditional human rights issues before entering the Legal acad uh, um, Academy, originally from Columbia, the country, then ended up at Columbia University for years before ending up at George Washington University. And today's talk um, is really, uh, the title is A More Perfect Internet. And part of that is is clearly, it might veer into the technical infrastructural elements of what we're talking about. But really, we're talking about the problems of civility and incivility online and when incivility can lead into more dangerous and harmful forms of behavior, uh, which Arturo has defined using the term of cyber violence. So maybe we can just kick off. Well, first of all, Arturo, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for uh, having me. For joining us. So the format of the event, we're just going to, Arturo and I are just going to have a conversation for mm, 25 minutes, half an hour to get some of the issues uh, on the table and then Let's open it up to questions, comments, thoughts, etc. So maybe you could just start by your categorization. So you have you, your idea that there's a spectrum of cyber violence and explain it to us and how that's helpful. Yes. Uh, well, again, thank you for having me to the Burping Klein Center and Vivek for uh, moderating. Um, so I want to talk about cyber violence uh, as a spectrum. Uh, and on the sort of low grade end of it, uh, we have what we could call digital incivility. Um, and uh, on the more aggravated end of the spectrum, you would have things like cyber warfare and, and cybersecurity understood as attacks on infrastructure and that sort of thing. So I'm not going to really be talking about th those most aggravated forms, right? Cyber warfare or cybersecurity. I'm going to focus on digital civility and then cyber violence, which is everything uh, that flows from digital incivility when it becomes more intense, especially in terms of harm uh, to affected persons. But doesn't you know fall into this other area that I'm excluding, um, and uh, so digital civility, right? Generally, uh, can be defined as being mindful of your presence online and the presence of others online, right? And how it affects uh, that engagement, um, and um, you know it encompasses all kinds of, of conduct and uh, uh, everything from you know the most common kinds of digital incivility are things like name calling or trolling uh, or unwanted contact, right? This, this is uh, studies done by uh, the Pew Research Center and Microsoft most recently show that, you know, there is a, a, a problem of incivility online. Um, and when it rises past a certain threshold, which I'm increasingly uh, defining as the harm to people that are affected by this violence, uh, it, it can become, you know, what I would probably call interpersonal cyber, cyber violence. So interpersonal cyber violence would be made up of things like cyber stalking, cyber harassment, and non-consensual pornography. So right, these are conducts that go well beyond just being mean online and, uh, and have huge impacts on the people affected by them. 
Uh, and so that's where I've um, been focusing my work on, both uh, as director of the International Human Rights Clinic. We have a cyber violence project where we uh, work with people who have been subject to this kind, these kinds of cyber violence, and we also do research in, on the topic. So that, in a nutshell, is the spectrum that, that, that we've been working with. So you're talking about the online manifestation of a problem that is probably as old as, as, as you know, the, the human species, right, which is that there are... Uh, we, we are a social animal. We relate to each other in different ways, and sometimes those relations are so suboptimal that they descend into violence. Is there something unique about the digital sphere that makes it uh, more of a problem online? And is there, you think there's something? Is it useful to think about digital incivility and 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 interpersonal cyber violence as separate from the offline analogs? to those problems. So like, oh, what's, I, what's different about it? Oh, I do think there are some substantial differences. I mean, so, so in some aspects, it's just an extension of what happens in the real world. So cyber stalking is one such example, right? Uh, it, it's, a, it's an online extension of stalking in the real world. And, and, and you frequently have the physical with the digital stalking conducts combined. But then you have uh, phenomena like cyber harassment and, and cyber mobs, right, uh, that generate at a pace and, and at a, you know, intensity that just you wouldn't have in the same way in the real world. Um, and uh, so, so I do think that there is a qualitative difference in the type of harms that can be uh, uh, generated um, in, the, in the digital realm. Um, and, uh, you know, non-consensual pornography as well, the, 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 you know, the... The range and, uh, and scope of, 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 the, of the conduct in the, in the audience it, it, it reaches and the harm that then uh, is effective is, is, I think, qualitatively different. And then the other thing is that just the nature of online communication, right, it's, it's, it's done in, uh, in a way that uh, has no context, as, as we've all, you know, I'm sure read and studied, uh, which means that things that may seem innocuous said in the real world with a smile come across as... Uh, offensive or hurtful uh, in a, in a, on a screen. Uh, and then when you compound that with things you're getting from other sources, right, because the way things kind of replicate and get bounced around and, and, and forwarded and so forth, uh, the multiplier effect uh, contributes, I think, to whatever negative feelings might be, you know, generated by a particular conduct. So, so on both these levels, you know, you, you have really a, an entirely different kind of dynamic. And the harm, I, you know, I keep coming back to that, uh, you know, victims of the most aggravated forms of cyber violence go through just horrendous personal experiences. Um, you know, uh, depression, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome. Uh, you know, they you know so the, they end up either reducing their presence online or completely cutting it off. And and that you know that itself nowadays has enormous implications. So I I think we're talking about something very different from what happens in the real world, which is bad enough, right? But so you have, uh, I mean, a lot of people are obviously talking about all, all of these issues, um, but you've actually done some work uh, or, or, you know, reported on some of the work that others have done to quantify just the extent of this problem. So maybe it might be useful to share that. Well, uh, so um, there have been a number of studies done on, on different aspects of cyber violence. Um, generally, uh, Pew Research has a, Pew Research Center has a study from 2014, which you can see online which reported that 73% um, of people online have experienced some form of cyber harassment, seen it or experienced it. Um, and 40% uh, claim to have personally been object of some form of, of cyber harassment. Uh, you know, 
depending on there are a number of studies that that pretty conclusively establish that women are disproportionately the objects of cyber violence and harassment in the way that I've been defining it. Uh, and among them, the uh, 18 to 24 age group is, is that which is most susceptible. So young women in particular are the, tend to be the objects of this kind of conduct. Uh, but it not, it's not exclusively limited to women. Uh, when we started our cyber violence project, we opened our doors to clients from the community and the first two clients to walk in were, were two gay men. Uh, one who had been impersonated on, on a uh, gay dating app, Grindr, and the other reporting uh, 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 revenge porn uh, from a former um, lover. So at that point, we had to reevaluate our focus, which was initially on violence against women online, and, and we made it instead gender-related uh, violence, uh, cyber violence, that, we, that is the focus of our project, and we renamed it uh, for that reason. So, so these statistics are helpful to, to show uh, generally that it's a very pervasive conduct. Um, I mentioned, you know, it, it tends to happen predominantly on social media sites. So 66% of the folks who reported seeing or experiencing online harassment in the Pew study uh, said that they experienced it on social media. And within social media, Facebook is the leading uh, platform. Uh, Twitter also, um, and so forth. Uh, one, one statistical uh, curiosity that I find is that the numbers of people who report seeing or experiencing online harassment uh, is roughly double those who uh, report having suffered it themselves. So for example, in the Pew study, 18% of, of folks reported having seen somebody stalked online, like direct, you know, singled out and, and harassed uh, repeatedly. Uh, but only eight reported that they themselves had been stalked, right? Um, and and I, I cited the original uh, numbers that say about 73 see something or experience something online, but only 40 say it's happened to them. Uh, and so I think what that suggests is a couple of things. One is that people are more likely to talk about what they see happening to others than what actually happens to themselves. I think there's a huge underreporting problem, and there are probably good reasons for that. And the other thing is, even if the underreporting numbers are true, it's still an enormous number of people that are being impacted, right? So. Uh, in preparation for this you know, talk, I, I did some math, which I normally avoid at all costs. But um, it turns out that close to 75% of the US population is online, right? So that's about 240 million people. And so if we take the number of 8% of people who report themselves having been objects of some stalking, right? You're talking about close to 20 million people. And we, you know, I don't think we get 20 million cases of cyber stalking reported in the country. I, I'm not, 100% sure of that, but I'm pretty sure it's not that high. So, and this brings me back to the digital civility piece, right? Awareness that this is actually a problem is, the, I think, a, a first goal for advocates, those of us who want to advocate for a, a better uh, internet, right? Uh, and uh, because, especially among the generation that, that is most affected, there's this sense, and I know this from my own students, right? This is just stuff that happens online, right? And, you know, People are mean to each other online, but you just block them and you move on, right? But at what point does that contribute to a culture that permits or, or facilitates you know, that type of conduct uh, moving forward? So I think that raises interesting questions about what do we do about this, right? So let's stick with just the, the digital uh, civility, incivility piece. Like, wh what can we do specifically about that? Let's, we'll abstract away the, the more serious forms. So okay. like, what, what are the measures? And maybe we can start with, you know, you mentioned 
the acontextual uh, nature of digital technology has long been shown to, you know, uh, 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 you know, promote flaming and trolling and all these activities that in in conventional social interaction face to face are, you know, not non-existent but rarer. Mm -hmm. So. Why don't we start with thinking about design principles? So, are, are there things that we can do? And these are supposed to be social media sites, which are where most of this is happening, right? Can we change the architecture of these sites to reduce the prevalence? Well, I'm not sure I would start with the architecture necessarily. I think the response uh, is has to be a what others have called a multimodal approach, right? Different modalities of, of regulation. So, this is Jacqueline Lipton and building on on Lawrence Lessig's framework for regulating online conduct. And um, so there are different parts to that, right? And, and architecture is just one of them. And that's the part that I'm probably least familiar with myself. So I'll, I might leave that to, to some of the experts in the room to see what could be done on that end. But uh, the conduct of private institutions, the, the role of public education, uh, and the creation of new social norms in particular, I think, are what we as advocates need to be focusing on. And in particular, this idea of promoting the digital civility um, right, the digital golden rule uh, uh, is is a, is a an important approach, right? Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about you know Microsoft did a, stu a global study of online safety perceptions, right, in 14 countries, and um, uh, you know determined that there that there w there was this sense you know that uh, harassment was happening, that people were being subjected to. Uh, these you know, offensive conduct and that and their response, their suggested uh, um, uh, reply was, well, you know, let's promote the digital digital civility principles, and they have an actual code, right? And the first, you know, um, rule of that code is is the digital golden rule, right? Uh, be aware of of what your presence online, how it's being felt, be respectful of differences, uh, and stand up if it's safe to do so for yourself and for others, right? So the, the what they're trying to do as part of their digital online safety initiative is to uh, help create new social norms from, from that particular sector. And, and my point is, well, I think that's a valuable initiative and it shouldn't be limited to the private sector, I think, right? And so in that vein, uh, as part of the cyber violence project that, that we're doing uh, at GW Law, uh, we have an educational component, a public educational component. And what that consists of is a cyber violence curriculum that we have uh, my students and I have, have um, put together uh, for university students, university age students, because the idea is to roll it out even beyond just institutions, right? And eventually we hope to get to uh, high school age students. And it has, you know, so it has three components, right? The first is the awareness creation component. What is cyber violence? Why is this something that you should be concerned about? And that's a little bit what I was talking about before. Second is, what can you do to prevent yourself from becoming, right, uh, a victim of cyber violence? Uh, and finally, the, the third module is, well, you know, if, if you are unfortunately subject to some kind of serious cyber violence, well, what can you do about it? It's interesting because the Microsoft study uh, that was done globally found that a substantial majority of the people surveyed uh, said they had no idea where to turn if they, had, if they were, you know, victimized in some way online. They just, people don't know what to do. Uh, and so I feel like that is an opportunity for advocates uh, in terms of helping to create awareness and then uh, promote prevention and then how do you deal with it when it happens? So I, I, I feel like the social norms, the public education piece is, is where there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Would you actually share with us some of like what's in that curriculum? I think that's really interesting just in terms of, of, of sticking with the prevention before we talk about responses yeah. as it happens. 
like what are things that people can do? Because I think there isn't a lot of awareness about what you know what would be the yeah. recommendations on what to do. Yeah, I know. And, and uh, well, as it turns out, um, most of the social media platforms, or all of them, that where which is where this conduct tends to occur, have measures that users can employ to protect themselves. Right. First and foremost, your privacy settings. Uh, and I didn't realize this until we started having you know clients come in the door who had uh, issues you know exposed because they didn't set their privacy uh, configuration very well and and so then we were started to advise them on what they could do and you know Facebook for example you can really fine-tune the privacy settings to the point of individual posts and individual users and contacts right friends um, and, it's, and and that's not a coincidence that's on purpose uh, right the company has a very strong internal uh, online safety uh, initiative that is meant to uh, address just this problem. Um, so knowing that you have, right, these opportunities to fine-tune your own privacy settings, realizing that there is a need to, right, that's where the education part uh, comes in. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece is password protection. It's unbelievable, but every time you go to a digital hygiene or digital security talk, regardless of what the setting is, you know, I was in one uh, in, in Eastern Europe on digital security for human rights organizations. The central, right, one of the central points is protect your passwords. You know, don't use the same password over and over again. Don't be obvious about what passwords are. Change them regularly. I don't know, the, the statistics show that, I don't know, some 70 or 80 percent of, of, of breaches of privacy or, or, or security are, are often because of, you know, access to passwords that people are not taking care to protect. Uh, and these are, so, these seem like straightforward responses, uh, and, and, and in large part they are, but um, I think that just having people realize that there's a problem that is requiring of these responses is, is kind of the part that I think we, we sometimes miss out on. And then once, once something happens, you know, then, then you resort to things like blocking or reporting procedures that platforms have that we talk a lot about. Um, so I think in terms, you know, that's, that is, is, is an important part of prevention. So we've kind of sort of the, the universe of self-help measures, but now let's sort of descend or, uh, on, on your spectrum to, to where something is happening. Mm -hmm. And that, in your definition, does implicate the law. So your definition of interpersonal cyber violence is something that is actionable under the law, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. Yeah. So why don't we talk about what, I mean, you've done some really interesting work on discovering some civil remedies that people can, yeah. can access short of going to the, the criminal system, which we'll discuss right. as well. But so what are some of the things that people can do using the tort system or the sort of civil liability system? That's a country by country thing, but we'll stick right. with the U.S. for now. Right. What, so so um, when you move into the, the legal realm, right, and I just want to highlight that for most clients, just getting stuff taken down or, or harassment to stop is their priority. So the, so the non-legal company interface piece is very important that we just talked about. But once uh, you get into a situation where um, you, you need to employ legal measures, then, you know, uh, there, there are a range of options. Obviously, there are civil and criminal. I talked about cyber stalking and cyber stalking statutes uh, across the country have largely been either updated or supplemented to include online conduct uh, as, you know, as a medium for stalking. Um, revenge porn is another area where you have uh, 35 states currently have revenge porn statutes, right, laws that outlaw, outlaw non-consensual um, posting of intimate or sexual conduct or images, I should say. Uh, but um, in, at least in the, in the practice that we have, my, so this civil 
the, the cyber violence project that I, I run, I run in conjunction with another clinic, the Family Justice Litigation Clinic. And the reason is because uh, that's the clinic that does domestic violence cases at our law school. And they were seeing a number of cases coming in that had a cyber abuse component. And so when I approached Lori Cohen, my colleague, about working on this directly, she says, absolutely, uh, we, you know, we have this coming up more and more, and so how can we work together to, to you know, help the clients here? That clinic focuses on uh, largely on securing uh, civil protection orders for their clients. They were doing this before there was a problem with cyber abuse, right? But, but what we have discovered in the past two years that we've been doing this is that with some uh, advocacy and with some guidance for judges, you can get a protection order that includes language about not communicating via the you know, online media. Um, and you know, it basically covers all the permutations that you would want to cover from you know to prevent a, uh, further harassment online, and uh, and it, this is not something that has not been really explored uh, in the literature or in much practice, as far as I know. I mean, I think that there are some other folks who are starting to think to, to work in this way, right? But um, the short of it is that we we believe that, um, and, and most states have some version of of a civil protection order that we use in D.C., right? Where it's it's not a criminal standard. You don't have to prove that uh, like. Stalking is happening. You just have to sh make a prima facie case that it's happening to get the order, and then the order will, you know, will include all these measures that would uh, be directed at ceasing the conduct. Now, so we're, we're talking about something that, you know, I guess is more popular. Well, you know, that's a restraining order. Okay. Right? Is that what, what we would call it uh, uh, for lay people? I mean, it's the same idea, right? You know, if you're a, a victim of, of stalking in the real world, you tell the person, you know, do not come within. X feet of me or contact me using the phone or whatever. And it's just the application of that yeah. to the digital realm. Yeah, my understanding is the civil protection order is what we call it in DC, but I, I think it, it works as a restraining order. And, and, and they're very open as to the content. You know, you can submit to the judge, you know, your list of measures. And as long as the judge approves or the other side consents, which sometimes happens, then you, you know, uh, don't go, you know, don't access this person's Facebook, uh, don't post, you know, you know, stay away from them electronically. Uh, anyway, you can and you can get very specific, and uh, but then there are First Amendment concerns that come up, right? Uh, which is the, sort of the counterweight that we're now starting to bump up into. If somebody on the opposite side of a CPO action, that like you know, that is to say, the person who was harassing wanted to contest one of these orders on First Amendment grounds, they clear, they definitely could. And so we're kind of trying to anticipate that and think about how you get language into these that has the effect of uh, curtailing cyber uh, harassment or stalking, but but would be, if not First Amendment proof, at least resistant. So, uh, I mean, First Amendment is one issue. Uh, and we talked about platforms that we're going to sort of uh, assume are generally socially responsible and want to do the right thing. Right. But of course, a lot of this behavior happens on the darker fringes of the internet. Uh, uh, you know, websites and other actors who are not responsible and you know who are going to claim various kinds of immunities, right? Uh, for example, Section 230 of the Communications Decency right, Act. Right, you can't get the websites that hang the revenge porn for and large unless they do something to it. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, uh, copyright sometimes trotted out as, a, as an idea, but you know, the, the copyright in the image usually best in the person who took it. And, well, but that has been used yeah. in a couple of cases. Mm -hmm. if, if the person took the image his, him or herself, and it's on a U.S. server, then you can notice that. You can send a DMCA takedown notice, and that and that that can work. In fact, we, you know, suggest doing that, and would be willing to do that on a, at a, you know, in a heartbeat if, if the opportunity arose. I think that's a. The problem is this stuff gets distributed so easily and far that once it's off, you know, not on a U.S. server, you can't really go there. Right. 
So let's sort of complete the spectrum of uh, exploration here and, and okay. talk about the criminal side of things, uh, which is probably in, in some cases, unfortunately, going to be where this goes. So what is the state of criminal liability and has the law caught up necessarily to deal with uh, these new modalities of stalking and harassment? Well, I think the law, normatively speaking, is in the process of catching up and it's done better in some areas than others, as I noted. Uh, but the real challenges are in law enforcement. Uh, so, for example, as I said, you know, most states now have versions of, stalk of their physical stalking laws that will include online uh, harassment or stalking or the through electronic means. Uh, so that, you know, that piece is pretty well covered and, and people have, even prosecutors, you know, I think have come around to understanding that that is part of what has always been understood as stalking. Uh, cyber harassment, right, if you look at conduct uh, that is not always directed at the victim but is always about the victim and can cause serious distress, that is much less uh, uh, attended in, the, in laws, right? And, and, the other, and there's a related problem, which is that of terminology. So, you know, some states have cyber harassment statutes that are actually cyber stalking statutes, and some have cyber stalking statutes that include harassment, which is right, doesn't require that it be directed at the victim as long as there's some kind of harm. And then there are all these different degrees of how much harm is required for it to be actionable. Uh, you know, one state requires actual physical harm to derive from the, from the electronic harassment, right? Uh, so it, when, you, when you start to move down from something as clear as cyber stalking, repeated conduct directed at the victim, causing fear for safety and life, right, it gets harder. Um, then you get to the revenge porn area, as I was saying a moment ago, about a year and a half ago, there were 25 states with revenge porn statutes. Now there are 35, right? On the other hand, there's no federal revenge porn statute. There's a bill uh, pending in Congress. I, I confess I need to learn more about it, but it, uh, it doesn't seem to be moving. Um, and so uh, the books have those laws. The question then is how do you persuade uh, the law enforcement to act on the stalking laws, the revenge porn laws, right? There, there's some federal laws that also, in theory, uh, let you bring cases for uh, interstate communications uh, that harass or threaten. Uh, uh, so the Interstate Communications Act, uh, the Telephone Harassment Act, handful of cases that use those. Uh, I think they're more of a theoretical, as far as you know, as far as I can tell. But but nothing that specifically says here's a phenomenon, here's a problem that we need to first we have to typify it, we have to define what we're talking about, and then address each piece of it in the appropriate way, right? So that's the normative piece. But then it's all about then it's all about the um, law enforcement. So we had a we had a CPO action, a restraining order action, uh, the, the, my partner clinic, where the client was complaining about uh, intimate pictures of hers that the respondent had posted, and the judge said, "Well, you know, you should just be flattered that someone wants to take pictures of you, and uh, because no one would want to take pictures of me naked." This is the judge, and the students were they just were you know you can imagine. Uh, what a, te what a teaching moment that was uh, on every level. That just happened. Like th this is from like last month. So, you know, and then I have another, I have another client who uh, had a, you know, a very unfortunately um, unhappy breakup with her former husband. And in the Malay, you know, he, he, he basically stole her phone and her computer, hacked into them, uh, and, and stalked her through, with, you know, through her own accounts. And... She reported that to the police, and they wouldn't take, you know, wouldn't take the either the stalking c complaint or the theft complaint. So eventually, the the hardware was returned, right? In part, as part of the ongoing civil proceedings there. Uh, but 
they just wouldn't, they didn't just not believe her. They didn't think there was a problem, uh, right? Ex-husband held onto the computer, what's the big deal, right? Meanwhile, he compiles a dossier on her that had full GPS tracking of where she had been, of who she had been with, pictures from her accounts, and she had all that, you know? So the, the, the real struggle, part of it is normative and getting that where it needs to be, but it's getting the law enforcement authorities to, to really capture, uh, understand uh, that there's a problem and that they have a role in, in dealing with it. And there are many, many, many other examples, you know, that you can read about online uh, that are similar to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing about law enforcement is that, you know, ultimately the, the sanction of the criminal law is going to be based on uh, their resources. And I mean, the scale of the problem that you're describing sounds that like we have to prioritize measures that are outside uh, the law, because if there are 8 million people or 20 million people who are being uh, harassed every year, I mean, I don't know. At a how, bare minimum, uh, it's probably. I don't know how many yeah. criminal prosecutions are in the United right. States, but, pro you know, it's probably not for all, all offenses, probably in the tens of millions, yeah. right? So yeah. this would overwhelm the system. Um, so maybe on that happy note, we should open it up. Um, both <laughs> I am an optimist, however. Yeah, uh, both <laughs> to, to questions and ideas and suggestions, yes, you know, please. on. on on ways of addressing some of the problems that have come to light here. Um, yeah, we'll start with you. Hi, hi, my name is Ron Newman. I'm going to ask this from a somewhat un un unusual viewpoint. One thing I didn't hear you mention anywhere during your talk was libel and defamation. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually on the receiving end of, of, of a civil uh, suit on that subject, which we basically managed with some help from somebody at Berkman to kill off with CDA 230. but. I want to ask you, what is the role of libel and defamation uh, law in this problem? It definitely has a role. Uh, it's part of the civil remedies that, in extreme cases, you can obviously bring uh, to bear uh, for your client. Um, depending, you know, if, if in fact the statements that are being broadcast online are untrue and, and, and harmful, then yes, absolutely, that, that would be something that we would consider as a remedy, no doubt. So how about but CDA 230? Obviously, is a barrier to that, you know, so well, this would be against actual individuals identified as posters of content, it, like you know, persons, right? So it wouldn't be like going actual hosts or anything, intermediaries. Uh, can't touch them, you know. To paraphrase a song from the '80s, right? Uh, and um, but uh, there have been some cases uh, brought uh, successfully. I think some settle under libel defamation uh, in in harassment situations, you know, where where you're able to identify the source, that the individual who posted this uh, defamatory content. And um, so it, it's, it, you know, we haven't actually used it yet, but, but I'd be, you know, I'm looking forward to, to doing that at some point. Very much a remedy. Uh, I'm Sarah Grant. I'm a 1L. Um, one of the things that seems, it was to me, somewhat obvious is that in cyberspace, you can be stopped from a foreign country. I mean, like, you know, physical, you cannot be physically stopped from a foreign country very easily. Um, so what, if we are looking at the legal side of things, either civil or criminal remedies, uh, is any of that available if you are being cyber-stalked or cyber-harassed from a foreign country? Because at least my understanding is we don't have the international yeah. conventions that would apply to these things, so that like ATS or anything else no, no, no. would apply. Yeah, no, that's that's a great observation, and you're exactly right. Um, so, so this is still playing out very much at the local level, at the national level, and in, in the way that you know states and, and authorities try to address it. But it has an international, transnational dimension that you put your finger on, which is, is hugely important. Um, 
And uh, so the first part of the response or answer would be the companies themselves operate globally. So depending on how the stalking takes place, let's say it takes place on Facebook, uh, and even if it's this, it's coming from a different jurisdiction, you you know Facebook will have that covered and the takedown notice and the reporting procedures uh, that by and large uh, I understand that they apply effectively are available. On the other hand, um, you know I had a case uh, where our client or uh, would have been so was a woman in a, in a different country who was the object of uh, sextortion. So her former um, partner uh, was threatening to publish, you know, sexual images if she didn't pay him a certain amount of money. And she was, you know, somewhere in Europe and he was somewhere in the U.S. And, uh, you know, so if it had been the other way around, there's like, you know, nothing we could have really done about it without talking to uh, lawyers or authorities in that other country. Uh, in, th in this case, we were able to do some some research into uh, what remedies would have been available since the the person threatening the criminal act was in the U.S. right U.S. territory, but it, it you know it points up some very very challenging uh, aspects of this that uh, you know the surface is only being scratched right now on that people are still kind of even realizing that it's an issue at all locally right but you're absolutely right uh, at any given time it could it could implicate people from anywhere in the world. Talking about this, Arturo, um, my question builds a little bit off of these previous two, but you. You talked about, um, you know, when Vivek asked you, you know, what elements of this are different uh, online, you talked about the the very rapid potential buildup of, of mass harassment. Yeah. So by, you know, many different actors on one, you know, one or many platforms. Um, and I'm wondering, have you thought about the legal or, you know, the legal remedies for those sort of situations where you can't really pinpoint a one actor who's called, I mean, there are many of them, there may be a ringleader, but there are, you know, yeah. maybe dozens or even a hundred people yeah. involved in this, and and there, what do you think is the, you know, what is the role of the platform in that? Yeah. What, I know they've been doing stuff, but is there are there other things that uh, platforms could be doing in conjunction with or separate from uh, legal uh, remedies. Yes, well, that, the cyber mob phenomena is is one of the big challenges, and the other, of course, is the anonymity, right? And, and I think, by and large, most of us would think would say anonymity online is is not a bad thing. Um, it might have to have its limits in extreme cases, and some of these are, in fact, extreme cases that we're talking about. Uh, but but generally speaking, you know, I think it's an important concept. So, um, but it. So it, what, it is what it is, right? It's, it's an obstacle if you want to pursue through, you know, libel or defamation actions or through some other kind of legal action. You got to identify the persons behind this uh, harassment uh, online. And, you know, that requires some sophisticated forensics most of the time if they're hiding behind anonymity or, or you know, other measures. And, and that's, you know, the kind of capacity that law enforcement should have and some do have now. That's another problem. Um, so, I, you know, I think trying to figure out how to get more of that forensic capacity into the hands of advocates um, who can break through, right, the anonymity and be able to go after some of this, um, some of the perpetrators legally is, 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 is a challenge. I mean, we had a, one, uh, this client I was telling you about that had her hardware taken when, uh, from, by her ex-husband, former husband, when she got it back, she's like, 
we need your help to, uh, you know, break this open and get inside and see all the evidence of him stalking us, stalking me. And, and we, you know, my answer was, I, I can't do that. Uh, you know, the police that you reported this to who aren't paying attention to you, right, in the cyber crime unit of the D.C. Police Department, they're the ones that are, should be doing that. Um, but they weren't. And, and so I felt really, you know, powerless uh, on, on that technical front, right? And, and I need to re I want to be able to turn to somebody and say, it may, you know, maybe I need to call the access people or something. I don't know. But uh, that's, that's, that's a big challenge. You asked about, you know, what can companies do more? I, you know, I actually think that the social media platforms are doing a pretty bang up job, um, not because, you know, it's not pure altruism. It's like this is their business model. It depends on people feeling safe uh, online in their space. Right. And uh, they have taken enormous strides uh, and, um, you know, uh, to adopt firm policies on things like revenge porn. Uh, so like Google and Bing will, will you know, will, will delink that from their searches. Um, uh, community standards that have been crafted to take into account conduct directed at individuals that's meant to shame or humiliate them right so that'll be taken down if you can show that uh, and and you know I was at a meeting uh, with, uh, with with a bunch of advocates uh, talking about this and they were complaining that companies don't do enough and I could do more and I you know I, and I said well actually from what I've seen you know uh, with Vivek I'm a, a member of the global network initiative and I've seen from the inside what what goes on and, and I really feel like they're doing a lot. Could they do more? Probably, but from what I've seen, they're very, very sensitive. Um, talking now about companies like Microsoft, like Google, like Facebook, um, right? Uh, Twitter, I, I don't have as much information on, although I do know that they do take down offensive tweets and close accounts uh, under certain circumstances. So there's probably more that can be done there. I, I, I you know, as someone looking at it at this in this way, I, I can't, I feel like they're doing a lot. Uh, but that, it's got to come, you know, there have to be multiple, it has to be a multimodal approach. It can't just be the companies, can't just be law enforcement, can't just be us. Definitely can't just be us. You mentioned if you do get a takedown order on a U.S.-based server, you probably for the larger well-known ones, it's fairly straightforward, the ones you mentioned earlier. But what about something that's uh, like a more obscure U.S.-based server than posted someplace and, you know, how difficult or successful are you with that? And, and when you said call the access people, I don't know who the access people are. Oh, I'm are. sorry. Access, is a, access Now is a, an NGO that has, um, that works on internet freedom issues and they have a very, they have like a help desk for uh, digital security issues uh, that I just realized now as I was uh, giving the answer to the last um, question. Uh, but really the point I was just making there is that it would be helpful to have access to people who could do this kind of forensics and I'm not even sure they can. but. Um, but so I haven't actually used the DMCA procedures yet. We've just researched them and, and we know that they're a remedy that can be invoked. Uh, I, so, uh, and I'm not a copyright lawyer myself. So I don't know uh, as a practical, I know that it has worked in a, in a case or two that I, that I a mom and pop uh, hosting place, you know, that maybe some guys done it on some oh, US space server, not on a Twitter or a, I mean, not on a Facebook, but something else, you know, I, I yeah, I, yeah, hmm. Yeah, the systems people might not be around, even in universities or co small colleges, you might not know how to get a sysadmin. No, I, I see your point, you know, you're talking about sort of how this gets atomized and anyone can basically host content, right? And so it doesn't have to be a big server. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, 
That's a good question. I had not thought about that. Uh, but, but what I can say is I haven't seen that come up yet as a problem. Um, I mean, again, I think it would come down to just being able to identify the person. And once you could, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't be able to go after them civilly, either for libel or for slander, or I don't know about copyright if they were hosting images. I, I don't know. But it's a, it's a very good question. Um, I'll have to think about that some more. Build off of Kira's question, um, you know, I think, I think one of the issues that Kira was pointing to is this sort of traditional cybersecurity issue around attribution, which is a hard one uh, in anything happening online. But there's also the issue of intent. Um, and you, 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 you've explored this in your uh, paper, right? Because especially with the mob phenomenon, the person who is perhaps instigating the mob knows what they're doing. Yeah. But it's often the case that people in the mob are unwittingly along for the ride. And when the online mob is something as easy as a retweet and you don't really understand what's going on, um, what do we do about that problem? Is that an education problem? Is it a legal problem? What is it? I do think it's partially a problem of a culture of digital civility, um, in part. Uh, I think there's definitely, uh, you know, there are... Uh, it's definitely an issue of just malevolence, I think, and it's hard to know, right, where that line is drawn. I, I remember seeing a, a report, I can't remember if it was the New Yorker, about a journalist who confronted um, an online troll, right? So she agreed to meet with him, and she had, you know, stalked him and said horrible things and death threats, and I'm going to, you know, she knew where he was doing his book talk and stuff, and just really all the horrible stuff that we're talking about. And then she agreed to meet with him. And, and they're talking, and, you know, and, and he, he brings up, you know, this horrible content that she'd been posting about him and at him. She's like, oh, well, I was never going to do any of that. She's like, we're basically all cowards. You know, those of us who do this, we're just, you know. So it's, it's that disconnect between what comes across, which, which looks and feels exactly what it looks like, right, to what the intent behind it might be. And I'm not trying to excuse any of that conduct, right, but it was... It was a. It was a. It was an insight into the the psycho the psychology of the online stalkers, uh, harassers, like the really the the worst ones, uh, that suggests that it's much more complicated than it might seem. Uh, then there was, of course, the uh, the Alanis case in the Supreme Court, the Facebook um, rap lyrics. Did you guys see that? Right. So uh, um, a guy was convicted of uh, I think it was attempted murder or. or some, some a crime based on the fact that he had um, put lyrics on his Facebook page, posted them that were about his former girlfriend and were explicitly and graphically describing how he was going to dismember her and, and chop her up in little pieces and do all horrible kinds of. And she was, of course, scared witless, and uh, and so he was convicted of the criminal offense of, uh, you know, I can't remember exactly what the offense was. I think it was uh, intent. Uh, or attempted or something, right? Um, maybe a threatening, yeah, death threats, yeah. Um, yeah, and um, it goes up to the Supreme Court and there's a big First Amendment issue there that everyone was kind of paying attention to, uh, but they don't even get to that. They say, you know what? They overturn the conviction. They say, as bad as this looks, there, there's no way you can actually find, based on what happened below, that he had the intent to do any of this. Just these lyrics in this way, you can't prove it. the intent was not proven, and because the the crime uh, required intent, they overturned it. it. Didn't even get to the First Amendment issue. So again, you know, you're asking about 
how do we know what the intent is? What does it mean? What can you do about it? Um, very complex, very um, nuanced and, and difficult to get at, right? I don't know if that answers your question, but it provides some context, yeah. Um, my question is about laws that do exist. Um, I guess, you know, in situations where intent is less important, such as re like revenge porn, 35 states have laws, but the other 15 don't. Um, so if you're, and, and for a lot of other forms of cyber violence, if you're resulting to things like DCMA or libel to to get what you want, to that's me that suggests you. there's a huge, that, that's a, a huge gap in yes, it is. Um, policies and regulations that exist. So I wonder, um, you know, what kind of education might be necessary for policymakers or how you kind of galvanize getting laws to reflect where we are in society with technology today? Well, I mean, there are a number of initiatives, right, that, that are meant to address that gap at the state level in, in laws um, against revenge porn. Uh, so is that what you're asking? As right. important, right, or something. So, well, there. So, there's one one way of looking at it is to say, well, we need a federal law, right? And so, the bill to for a federal revenge porn law. Um, I mean, leaving aside the enforcement issues that come even with that, uh, is one is one attempt to sort of make this more uniform. Uh, folks have been working on getting more states to adopt these laws and have them to be be more consistent, right? So, the uh, Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Um, Marianne Franks at Miami and, and Danielle Citrone at Maryland have, have done a lot of work in this area, and are you know, and they're largely the engines behind states this increase in state protection, right? Uh, so, but to answer, so to, I think it answers your question more directly. Educating policymakers that there's a problem is is almost certainly uh, something that needs to happen. Uh, and I talked about the importance of public education. I talked the importance about creating awareness publicly. Uh, among people who might be affected or might be perpetrators of cyber violence, but I, I realize now that we probably should be directing some of this at policymakers as well. Um, might need to add that to to our agenda because uh, you're right. I just a lot of this comes back to people just don't see it's a problem or don't understand how much of a problem it is. Uh, that's really the, the I think the impediment to getting better legal responses and better enforcement. That does answer your question, right? Okay, good. So in, in terms of this sort of raising the awareness of the problem and maybe also just a bit on the educating both the judges and others, I'm, I'm fascinated by these cases where you have people who will, with intent, uh, tweet at a person who they know to, to have um, uh, what's the disease? Uh, epilepsy. They'll tweet. Uh, flashing GIF or flashing video, oh, right, oh, to right, cause yeah. physical harm. Like that Newsweek reporter, yeah. yeah. There's been a couple of cases, there's been that one case recently and, and, and a couple of other cases in the past. I'm wondering, I mean, as, as terrible as, as that is, if that's a helpful kind of a case in, in terms of kind of highlighting that this kind of online... How malevolent they can become, yeah. yeah. Okay. That was actually assault, right? Exactly, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah, that yeah. sounds right, yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that case, but uh, yes. Well, so, there, you know, there are extreme cases like that. Other extreme cases are like the swatting cases, right? You all familiar with swatting, where uh, somebody reports some kind of violent activity at, a, at, at the, the target's home, uh, maybe a terrorist, an alleged terrorist, or weapons or something, right, explosives. And then the local SWAT team gets called in, and they just surround the house, and these unsuspecting folks inside, right, get swatted. 
right? They knock, the door gets kicked in and it's the SWAT team and they're just sitting there, right? Uh, and this happens pretty frequently. Uh, um, so, so there are you know, uh, extreme manifestations of this that I do think help draw attention uh, to the problem somewhat. I, I think that's um, part of, of, of what we try to do in our, in our own education curriculum. We use the Gamergate example, Zoe Quinn, uh, as the right because our target audience are 18 to 24 year olds and so we use her uh, and that, that to get their attention right in her case has everything in it right uh, stalking and harassment and revenge porn and so uh, I agree with you I think that is part of it but I think we just need more consistent and broader uh, efforts uh, broader coalitions uh, right now there aren't a lot of folks really looking at this this way um, you know and there's a there's a dismissiveness and still in the authorities not all but some that make it hard. So yeah, I think that's helpful, yeah. So what do you think are the points of leverage that are available to people in this room, right? So if all of us are gonna leave this talk as people who are concerned about these issues and wanting a more perfect internet, what do you suggest that we do? Is it a matter of private virtue online or is it really focused public policy advocacy or what do you think is the right, thing, right approach? Well, I think it does start with, with one's own conduct online and mindfulness. Uh, one thing that grew out of the work that we did that was, for me, an insight was, you know, you can inadvertently be someone that's being uncivil or hurting, you know, causing harm online without even realizing it. Uh, and how do you uh, make yourself aware of that and, and avoid it? Uh, and that's, that's the mindfulness piece, right? And, and we built that into our curriculum because you know, we realize with my students that a lot of people don't view themselves, most people don't view themselves as harmful actors online uh, until they are, right? So the, I think it starts there. Uh, you know, at least as an educator uh, and an advocate, I think the, the, edu the public education piece and the forging of new social norms are really where we need to uh, engage. Uh, and, uh, and I think there's no substitute for engagement. Um, and this is where organizations like Access and others that we know uh, have started to get the ball rolling. But um, at least on the cyber violence front, uh, you still don't have that kind of coalition or, or broad network or well-articulated movement uh, that needs to happen before you start getting through to, I think, policymakers and others that this is a real problem, that it has a shape, that it has parameters, that it can be addressed, that it has to be addressed. Uh, so I, I, I would start with that idea of how do I contribute to building out new social norms and, uh, and you know, promoting awareness and, and engagement. Of course, Rob. So, um, first of all, thanks for the great talk. And I was, I was really glad to say you're optimistic at the end of what was otherwise pretty depressing. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm curious about the, the, the notion of teaching people to be better people online and, yeah. and, and mindfulness. Yeah. And, I, if we're to overly simplify this, there's there's people being jerks online who know they're being jerks, and that's why they're right. doing what they're doing. And there's then inadvertent jerks. Do we have any idea what the proportions are? What kind of people might be susceptible to a, a strong nudge in the right direction? Or I don't know. I mean, I take the view that most people online are probably not the jerks, the, the knowing jerks, right? Um, or, or even uh, the inadvertent jerks. I think most people online, and this is just purely impressionistic. I don't have any numbers on this. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, other than just looking at sheer 
the numbers of people online, right? We say, what, 240 million Americans, right? 75% of the population online. Uh, so you, I think you want to assume that most of the people in your audience are in that category of folks who um, at least are not intentionally are being jerks, right? And maybe most of them are trying to avoid that. For the ones who perhaps are jerks or knowingly so, or, or uh, you know, that's where the educational piece that talks about consequences or potential consequences, I think is important. Um, uh, this is an imperfect model, right? I, I, I admit, but so if I, you know, if I'm a college student and I'm, our, 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 our curriculum is called pulling the plug on cyber violence, right? So we say, we show that there's this problem. If I'm someone who, who I know has engaged in some of these conducts, I've trolled a bit or, you know, I've anonymously uh, critiqued someone in, in personal terms or I, I've been a jerk on I know. And I start, and I see, right, this panorama presented and I see the harm that it does to people. Uh, I see examples of that. I see what consequences might come from it. Uh, even if they're only theoretical still in, in some in some point. I'm hoping that some people will get a new perspective on their own conduct, right? I mean, I think that's the way that I would approach that. Um, and and then, of course, there's just, there's always going to be a, a group that isn't affected by anything. They're always they're going to do this no matter what. They're going to find ways to get around, even if the, even if the norms evolve and get to where they should be, even if we start to get enforcement, you're still going to have people who are going to do swatting and, and who are going to do horrible things uh, to other folks online, just as they do it offline. So, but I just feel like there is an awareness dimension that has not really even been fully activated yet that would get reach a lot of people and, and affect conduct. Uh, you know, and I come from a hard-edged accountability background, right? I mean, I'm about legal accountability and, and, uh, and so, for me to get to the point now where I'm actually advocating shaping new social attitudes and norms is something that surprises me first of all. <laughs> but I, I don't see any other I don't see any other way of approaching this. It's about culture, it's about creating new practices and, and awareness. Yeah. This is just restating the question really, but let me restate it anyway. Sure. I mean if the intent is to harm, if the intent is a retribution or whatever. To destroy. It, it doesn't help to show people how much they harm other people by their actions. That's, that's just right. what they want. That's right. So there's got to be another, another way. Well, that's where I think the law should come in. That's where the justice uh, system should operate, right? And and that's the other challenge that we were talking about. That it's not it ha it's not at that level yet normatively, and certainly not in terms of enforcement. So that's that's the complementary piece, right? For those who are always going to be malevolent, uh, then. You know, you need to have some legal remedies, uh, or else um, it won't work. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll give you the last word. Uh, oh no! Uh, I hope you give me the last word, actually. Otherwise, like audience, so please make it profound. <laughs> um, so my name is Philippe. I'm a second year here. Um, I've been reading a lot lately about how the environment on, tech, on on cyber and on the internet is very different than the real world. And some of the arguments advancing are that the laws that we have in the real world cannot be used to combat the problems in the cyber world because it's just a very different dynamic. Um, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of that difference between the problems on cyber. Are they just an extension of what we experience in the real world or are they fundamentally different in some way? Um, I say yes, no, and Neither. Uh, uh, there's some truth to both of those uh, perspectives, right? 
I mean, let's take human rights, for instance, right, which is the background that, that I have. Uh, and there was, a, there was a, you know, a debate back uh, a few years ago about whether we needed a whole new system of norms to deal with online conduct or whether the uh, framework that was already in place for human rights can and should apply and, and would, would be effective. And, you know, that came out in the second scenario, right? So there's a, it's now firmly established that uh, the rights apply online as, as well as in the same way that they apply offline. And then there, there are interpretations that say, you know, and they are, you know, these rights are adapted and interpreted in ways that are consistent with their underlying values, but that take into account the technological dimension, right? So because there are, you know, new media uh, will create new issues. And so, um, you just have to adapt, right? So, uh, and, and I think that has worked by and large well, although not com not not fully. Uh, you know, I think the cyber violence um, area is one that poses, in some ways, new challenges. In some way, just you know, it's just the same thing happening online, like the stalking example. But some of this stuff, um, I think, because of the reasons we were talking earlier about how you know the the, the way that it can escalate, uh, right? Uh, and also uh, the way that the harms are 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 generated and you know the subjectivity. I mean, I think there are dimensions to it that make it something different than what uh, you could ever do in the physical world for the first right as a first point, or that would um, that you could address uh, with existing tools. You need we need some new tools. So it's actually a bit of both, um, and I think that's how the human rights framework has has evolved to address this particular phenomenon. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay.